Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Eugenia Cheng's mission is to rid the world of maths phobia. She holds a doctorate in pure maths from the University of Cambridge, teaches at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, is a concert pianist, founded Liederstuber, a non-profit organisation aimed at bringing classical music to a wider audience, and has written three books in which she proclaims the beauty of mathematics. They are How to Bake Pie, in which she posits that the bechamel in a lasagna resembles the number five, Beyond Infinity, and her latest The Art of Logic, in which she links geometry with sexual harassment. Cheng speaks and argues deftly with mathematician Tanya Evans in a session supported by Te Punaha Matatini. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Wouldn't it be helpful if everyone were able to think more clearly, to tell the difference between fact and fiction, truth and lies? But what is truth? Is the difference between truth and untruth always that simple? In fact, is it ever that simple? If it is, why do people disagree with each other so much? And if it isn't, why do people ever agree with each other at all? The world is awash with terrible arguments, conflict, divisiveness, fake news, victimhood, exploitation, prejudice, bigotry, blame, shouting, and minuscule attention spans. <laughs> when cat memes attract more attention than murders, is logic dead? When a headline goes viral regardless of its veracity, has rationality become futile? Too often, people make simple and dramatic statements for effect, impact, acclaim, and to try and grab some limelight in a world where endless sources are competing relentlessly for our attention all the time. But the excessive simplifications push us into fabricated black and white situations when everything is really in infinite shades of gray and indeed multicolors. Hence, we seem to live with a constant background noise of vitriol, disagreement, and tribes of people attacking other tribes, figuratively, if not for real. Is all hope lost? Are we doomed to take sides, be stuck in echo chambers, never agree again? No. There is a life belt available to anyone drowning in the illogic of the modern world, and that life belt is logic. But, like any life belt, it will only help us if we use it well. This means not only understanding logic better, but also understanding emotions better. And most importantly, the interaction between them. Only then can we use logic truly productively in the real human world. Thank you very much. Uh, Eugenia, I really enjoyed reading your book. And in your book, you make a very strong case, very convincing case, for using mathematical training uh, to develop logic and ability to think abstractly in order to tackle most of the pressing problems in this world. I have to admit, as you say in your book, that um, at the start of, 
of at the start of uh, your introduction, I was a little bit skeptical. And you say that there are a lot of mathematicians who who are thinking that our attempt to trying to make mathematics popular and talk to non-specialist audiences is, is a, it's not a very useful exercise. I used to think that by trying to simplify mathematics and um, trying to explain it, the, the value of mathematics is gone. It's, that's what my approach was. But after reading your book, I've changed my mind. Oh, I, you showed me the way that there is value in doing this because your approach is entirely different. You, you represent mathematics in a different way. After reading this book, if you do, you will see that Eugenia sees mathematics as, as a theory of analogies. And then she considers those analogies at different levels of abstraction. And then she provides everybody who reads this book with a very structured framework how to use the system of analogies for any, any real-world situations. And it sounds remarkably simple and very efficient. I'd like to do our best in the remaining time is trying to explain what you've done and how it all works. Can you please talk about analogies and, um, or logic, what's the best starting point? <laughs> I love talking about analogies. And in fact, in all the books I've written so far, I've used many, many analogies to reach a wider audience. And today, it strikes me that we're reaching a literally wide audience. <laughs> so the thing about mathematics is that it is thought of as being something that is dry and difficult and full of rules and nothing really to do with humans. And unfortunately, some people get this idea from bad memories of maths lessons at school, which is very unfortunate because there are many wonderful maths teachers out there, but some people remember more about things like tests and homework and getting things wrong and having to memorize times tables. And maths is so much more than those things. And I came more and more to think about ways to explain it by teaching my art students at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is where I now am. Because they are not going to go into engineering or science or finance or any of the obvious places where maths is directly useful and where the direct applications of maths happen. But they love thinking and they really want to make the world a better place. And that's what they're doing in art school. They're not just, it's not just about painting pictures or something. They really want to change the world. And so do I. And so I found ways to show them that maths is not just about rules. It's about thinking. It's about thinking clearly. And it's about thinking deeply in a particular way. And as Tanya said, I use a lot of analogies, first of all, to help reach the emotions of other people. Because maths can be very dry if it makes no contact with anything in your life that you care about. And sometimes the attempts to make it relevant to life end up being things like, you buy 84 watermelons and you share them out between 13 people. How many watermelons does everyone have each? Which is a very um, tragic attempt to make it relevant. And nobody sees, everybody sees through that. No child is going to be fooled by that, probably. And so I wanted to find things that were really relevant to my art students. And I always think that when you're teaching, if to teach well, 
It's really important to find out what motivates your students and tap into that rather than impose your own motivation on top of them. And I found that my art students are most motivated by questions of social justice and politics. And so I kept finding more and more things to think about and more and more ways to, to explain political questions using the help of mathematical ideas and also to explain the idea of mathematical thinking by using it in political arguments. It's both of those things in both of those ways. And mathematics is fundamentally a field that uses logic. Well, most academic disciplines use logic. But it also uses abstraction. And so it starts from a place that says, unfortunately, most things don't behave logically. I don't, even I don't behave logically. Maybe even you don't behave logically. My computer definitely doesn't. And things don't behave logically. And so we have to forget some of the details that prevent things behaving logically. And that moves us into the abstract world of ideas. And that's the first move that often scares people in mathematics, because then you don't have anything to touch anymore. You can't see things. The abstract world of ideas is a place where things work logically, but that means you can't just shout people down in order to win arguments. And the, but the good thing about it is that what you're doing is you're finding similarities between many different situations so that you can study them all at once just one time, so you don't have to keep doing it over and over again, and you can save your precious brain power for something that's more important. And honestly, I tell my students that maths comes from being lazy, where you don't want to do the same thing over and over again. So I like to think if I had been born in another era, I might have invented a dishwasher so that I wouldn't have to keep washing my dishes over and over again. But instead, I'm a mathematician and I invent mathematical theory so that we don't have to keep doing the same maths over and over again. And at a basic level, it's things like, well, one cookie and one cookie makes two cookies, and one chair and one chair makes two chairs, and one apple and one apple makes two apples. And it didn't matter that those things were apples or chairs or cookies. There's an analogy going on between them. And and then in maths, what we do is we make precise what is causing the analogy, and we go, oh, it's one thing, and one thing makes two things. And it didn't matter exactly what type of thing that is. And so we make an analogy by performing an abstraction and saying, what abstract concept inside all of these situations is analogous, and then we take that, and the thing that's, that makes it maths, as opposed to just having conversations with people, is that we take the analogy and we consider it to be an actual thing. And that actual thing is the new abstract concept that we study. And because we make it so precise what that thing is, it really eliminates a lot of ambiguity, where in normal live arguments, someone will, will, will attack you by saying, well, that's just like saying such and such a thing. Or, or you can say, and then someone else will say, that's a terrible analogy. And someone else will go, no, that's, the, that's not the same. Whenever I make an analogy, someone will go, well, that's not the same. That analogy breaks down. And I want to go, of course it breaks down. It's an analogy. That's the whole <laughs> point. It's not actually the same, but there is a sense in which it's the same. And maybe that sense is a sense that can be somehow illuminating to us. And in the end, I really think that maths is not about getting the right answers. It's about shedding light on things. And it's about constructing worlds in which we can see some aspect of a situation more clearly. And it doesn't mean that this thing is right and that thing is wrong. It means, can we illuminate a situation by performing this particular abstraction? And what I aim to do in this book is perform many abstractions for you in order to try slightly desperately to illuminate these desperate times that we're in. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I was trying to quickly uh, 
jot down all the topics that you mentioned in a book, and sometimes in the form of an example, or sometimes in a, uh, some sort of elaboration. Um, here's the list, I'll just read oh, it wow. out. <laughs> and tell me if I forgot something. You can see the white privilege, male privilege, racial discrimination, harassed minorities, affirmative action, sexual harassment, sexual assault, homophobia, pedophilia, transphobia, perverts, religion, political beliefs, tribal behavior, oppressed people, in particular women, mansplaining, that was my favorite. Um, we'll talk about that, uh, absolutely. And uh, also whether or not uh, chocolate makes you happy. Did I get it right? So um, if you are interested in any of those topics, I would strongly recommend in this book. Um, should we talk about any of those who are an example or mansplaining? Mm -hmm. um, because that's a kind of a new term and some people might not even know what it means. Mm -hmm. We can talk about, we can talk about mansplaining. Yeah. Um, Perhaps there's someone who'd like to mansplain mansplaining to us. <laughs> so mansplaining. <laughs> is a very interesting but also very divisive concept. And unfortunately, some people get really upset about the entire concept of it and think that it is sexist right back to say anything about mansplaining. And one of the things I talk about in the book is various types of logical fallacy that I see in arguments all the time around me. And it's very frustrating, but then I found it very cathartic to put them all in this book. So th this book came out of material I had been developing while teaching my students round about the time of the 2016 US election. And after that election, I did what many people did, which was I wept, I drank, I got really depressed, and then I thought, what can I do? Because I don't want to just sit around complaining. I like to try and do things rather than just complain about them. And I thought, but what can I do? I'm a pure mathematician. And I thought, well, actually, all of these arguments that I see around us that get more and more divisive, that end in everyone yelling at everyone else, both sides yelling just as badly at everyone else, I thought, I can always see what everyone is trying to say, or at least I feel like I can see. And so I started using them all as, as um, material or as case studies for the book. And so every time I got riled up, you know, when you see people completely talking at cross purposes, getting nowhere and saying things that don't seem to make any sense or that just are, are not in good faith, they're not trying to understand anyone. And I make sure that I read things every day on the internet that make me ill. So that, so to make sure I'm not staying stuck inside an echo chamber, and to make sure that I understand what people think who really disagree with me. And it does make me ill, though, because that's the point. And then I started putting them in, in the book, and then every time I have an interaction with someone in person that's somewhat obnoxious, because guess what? I have interactions with people, sometimes on Twitter even, that are a bit obnoxious. And it's quite cathartic to go, well, now you're a case study. <laughs> And actually, I got this from a dear friend of mine who used to go on internet dates and look at people and go, well, you're, you've gone from being a date into an anecdote now. <laughs> and so one of, the, one of the things that comes up really a lot, maybe the most 
out of all the logical fallacies I see is the straw person argument. And I like to call it, it's, it's classically called a straw man argument, but I try to avoid putting gender on things when it's not entirely necessary. And the straw person argument is where you take somebody's argument and you replace it with a much weaker argument, a straw person, and then you knock it down. And then you haven't really achieved anything because you've knocked down an argument that no one was trying to make in the first place. And, but it makes it feel like you've done something and people like feeling like they've scored a point or, or won something or beaten somebody. There's this awful idea that arguments are about winning or beating people. And mansplaining, the, the concept of mansplaining is one of those where some people think that mansplaining means that women think that all ma men are patronizing. And that's not what mansplaining is about. And sometimes people argue against it and say, well, women are patronizing too. And so that's also not what mansplaining is about. It's not about the idea that all men are this and all women are that. It's about structural power in society and about the pervasive structural societal assumption that women don't know what they're talking about. And in it came from Rebecca Solnit, that's her name, isn't it? Where someone, she met someone at a party who asked her, it was a man, and he asked her what she did, and she said she'd written a book about something or other, and he said, oh, well, it can't possibly be as good as this other book that, you, that. And, it, and that was her book. <laughs> and and it's, not, it's not to say that no woman would ever do that, but, but we women, especially, intelligent, educated women who are experts in something have got so tired in our lives of having the assumption made that we don't know what we're talking about, even though, even when all the signs are there. So it's not just that someone explains something to you that you understand already. It's that someone explains something to you despite all the evidence being really clear that, for example, you've just written a book about it and you're a professor and you have a PhD and your whole career is public speaking about this topic still people will try and explain things to me that I've already talked about in my book. And, and sometimes they write to me and say, well, I have to tell you about this error that you made. And it turns out that their exact email is a footnote on page 50. And I encourage you to look at page 50 because I think that maybe, I think it's in, I think it's page 50 in this book. So someone, someone wrote to me and said, well, I, your book is very interesting. And um, however, I think I, I, I need to tell you about an error that you made. Because you call these things Venn diagrams. And actually, they're supposed to be called Euler diagrams. And all philosophers know this, but somehow mathematicians don't seem to know this. <laughs> and so here, at the footnote on page 50, uh, technically, diagrams like the ones above aren't supposed to be called Venn diagrams, but rather <laughs> Euler diagrams. Blah, 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 blah. Personally, I think the distinction between Venn diagrams and Euler diagrams is more like pedantry than precision. <laughs> right, thank you for that. Um, I mean, would it be a good example, and we don't have slides or abilities to use a board, but uh, this uh, diagram that you've got in your book, of um, introducing layers of abstraction and how you are pivoting and um, that allows you to make logical conclusions about seemingly unrelated situations in the real world. Mm -hmm. I think that was very interesting for me to mm -hmm. be able to 
take um, take away from this book. Uh, what would be the best example to try I mean, to explain I mean, since we've that? already been talking about mansplanation, yeah. this is an example, because um, what I do is I draw diagrams to help visualize many situations. And that's a very big part of my field of research, category theory, which is very, very visual. And I love it because it means it's it's something that you can manipulate. You can then invoke more types of intuition than you could before. And so I, I came up with this way of drawing diagrams to encapsulate what's going on when you make an analogy. So there's, there's something here, and you're saying it's analogous to something over here. And usually in normal life, we just stop there. But in mathematics, we say, what is the thing up there, the abstract thing, that is causing this analogy? And the thing is that there are different levels you can go to, in which case you include more examples. So the more abstract you go, actually the more examples you get to include. And even I found this to be a slightly surprising conclusion because abstraction usually feels like you're getting further away from normal life. But actually the point is to be able to include more examples. So people often say to me, I was fine with maths until the numbers became letters. <laughs> and that's an abstraction. But numbers are already an abstraction, as we saw, that you go from two cookies and two chairs to two, and then you could go to, to N. You know, you could have N cookies, and then that's really terrifying. And we forget that we all made the leap, most of us made the leap to the abstract concept of numbers really long time ago, so long ago that we've forgotten we did it. But if you ever help small children understand numbers, and I love helping small children do anything, really, that, that you, can't, you can't do that abstraction for them. You have to wait. You keep counting things in front of their face. And they, they learn to recite the numbers long before they learn how to associate them with objects correctly. They sort of vaguely go one, two, three, four, and vaguely count at things. And so every level of abstraction we go to seems to take us further away, but brings in more examples. And if we go too far, then yes, we bring in too many examples that maybe we didn't mean to. And so what I did with this diagram here is that there's, on the one hand, there's mansplanation. And then on the other hand, there is a woman being patronizing to a man, which does happen. Women are indeed sometimes patronizing to men. And those things are analogous at the level of a person being patronizing to a person. But they are not analogous at the level of what mansplanation is really about, which is a man telling a woman something she evidently already knows as part of a general pattern of men failing to give women credit for intelligence. And in that sense, they're different. And in that sense, women can't mansplain. So sometimes men go, well, women mansplain things too. But they can't because there is no pattern in society of women assuming that men are generally not intelligent. There are particular areas in which it might happen. So I know that men often feel patronized when, they're, when people are talking about childcare or looking after children or, or something like that. But as a general overall structural thing, and in fact, I'm sure that many of you just went to the amazing talk by the Prime Minister. And even she was talking about how she has to prove herself. She feels like she has to prove herself all the time because there are people who are so ready to assume that what was that terrible thing that, she, that someone said about her? She's a pretty little communist. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Honestly, after listening to her, I thought, can we just talk about what she said for the next hour? I don't know. <laughs> Right. Wonderful. And you use these analogies and those le different levels of abstraction very efficiently on page 216. Uh, and. Um I think this example really demonstrates how you can combine seemingly distinct, unrelated situations using this power of abstraction of talking about mm -hmm. social services and people's view of affirmative action, 
cancer screening, sexual harassment, how it's all mm-hmm. comes together is, yeah. So I honestly, I honestly had many revelations myself when I was writing this. And that's one of the reasons I love being in education, because Teaching at its best is a two-way process. It's not just us standing at the front imparting knowledge in that direction. Maybe in the olden days it was that. But when it's good, it goes in all directions. And I learn so much from my students, as well as hopefully them learning things from me. And partly I just learn from how they think, because they're art students and they think quite differently from how I think in many ways. But partly because in order to explain difficult concepts to people, you have to understand them so much more than just understanding them yourself. And so it it kind of forces me, that's a bit of a strong word, it encourages me to to think more deeply about things and understand them better in order to explain them to people. And while I was writing this book and talking to my students, I found that I had to make it so much clearer, the thought processes I go through in order to understand things, that I then found myself thinking more clearly about them myself. Because I am a mathematician, and I've been trained as a mathematician for my whole life. My brain has been trained in this way of thinking. So I don't even notice I'm doing it half the time. And when I need to sit down and explain to somebody else how I'm doing it, it, I found myself drawing these diagrams that made it clearer to me. And I realized, so I made some connections in my own head about things I believe that I hadn't understood before, before, such as why I believe in social services and affirmative action, and that that's actually abstractly the same as the fact that I believe in cancer screening as well, and that I believe in things like compulsory voting, which is something that I really changed my mind about in the course of my life. So I confess I don't know if you have it here. I know that that, that they have it in Australia. And I used to think, and so I think it's really important, as one of the things I talk about, is that if you are a rational human being, it's really important to be open to the idea of changing your mind. If new information comes in, or if new insight comes in that you hadn't taken into account. And so I sat down and I wrote a list of all the big things I've changed my mind about in my life. And one of them is compulsory voting. And it happened very quickly, actually, because before I thought, no, that's terrible. It should be a right, it's a right to vote. It's not an obligation to vote. And then I read an article explaining that the point of compulsory voting is to stop the disenfranchisement of certain groups of voters and to put the responsibility on the government to make it possible for everyone to vote rather than on individuals to prove that they're entitled to vote. And I thought, oh, crikey, yes, that's a really good point. And then I changed my mind. <laughs> and, and I realized that all of these things, including social services and cancer screening, are examples of the abstract concept of preferring to avoid false negatives rather than false positives. And so false negatives is where something doesn't happen when it should have happened, and a false positive is where something should have happened when it didn't happen. And so some people are very afraid of going for cancer screening, and they say that cancer screening is really bad because you might get diagnosed with cancer even if you don't have it, which is a false positive. And they think that would be so traumatic. Whereas I think it would be worse to miss a cancer diagnosis when you have got cancer, because cancer can be treated if you catch it early enough, it can be treated much better than later. And so that is about me preferring um, to avoid false negatives. And it's the same with social services, that some people think are really afraid that if we have social services, then we will help some people who don't deserve it somehow. Whereas I'm much more worried that we are neglecting people who really do need help. And I think that if we end up giving some money to some people who don't deserve it, then that's a lesser evil than if we are letting people die on the streets because we're not looking after them. And 
I realize that's the same with the, the compulsory voting as well, that, that some people think that are so afraid of voter fraud and the idea that some people will vote although they're not entitled to, I'm much more worried about the people who are not being allowed to vote even though they are entitled to it. And it's not that one of those cases is better than the other, and I'm not saying that people are wrong for thinking the other thing, but the fact that I have distilled it down to this abstract concept of worrying more about false negatives than false positives enables me to make connections between all sorts of different disparate arguments that would otherwise seem unrelated, and then if I disagree with someone, then we can sit down and talk about false positives and false negatives rather than just yelling at each other and saying that we're stupid. I guess that brings us to the next topic, if you're up for it, to discuss sexual harassment mm. uh, along the same lines mm -hmm. of, uh, in the, that is placed in the same diagram along the um, strand of take evidence seriously, although it might cause unwarranted action. Yes, so... Yes, sexual harass harassment is a very big problem. And another, another straw person argument comes in here because some people say, oh, well, women do it too. And yes, they do. But it is also different at the level of structural power in society. And because men hold structural power in society over women, which again does not mean that every man holds power over every woman, but just the general experience of, for example, walking up the street and being afraid. I walk up the street and I'm afraid. More than half of the people in the street I know could overpower me. And I'm, I'm, I'm ready, I'm always ready. And women do things like, there are things we do to protect ourselves the whole time, like walk up the street holding your keys in your hand in case you need to attack somebody, or triangulate every crossing. I look down a street to see who's coming in case I need to be afraid and take a different turning, that kind of thing. So the thing about sexual harassment and false positives and false negatives is that, that up until now, there have been many people, especially men, but not always men, getting away with sexual harassment because the burden of evidence is so high on being able to prove that something happened. And if there's only two people in the room, then it really does become one person's word against another. And some people are, there's been a movement saying that we need to take accusations much more seriously and believe the victims all the time. And then there's another camp of people who are up in arms in terror that this means that some peop innocent people could be accused of sexual harassment. And that is a false positives and false negative situation. Because the false positive is when someone is accused even though they're innocent. And the, but the false negative is the fact that loads of people are getting away with it. And that thus we have a culture where people know that they can get away with sexual harassment and so they do get away with it because it is very difficult to, to prove that anything happened. And that's what I care about. I care about the fact that there are so many false negatives happening and people's, people's lives are being ruined by sexual attacks and that very few convictions can happen. I don't have a solution for exactly what to do about it because yes, it is really terrible if an innocent person gets accused. But then again, I think, who are the people who are really worried about, about the false positives. I think there's two types of people. There are the people who really want to carry on getting away with things. And so the people who benefit from us not doing anything about it are the people who want to carry on getting away with sexual harassment, mildly or, or badly. And then the other people who worry about it are the ones who would ever dream of making an accusation against an innocent person. And, and maybe 
that's something that we should think about as well because many of us would never dream of doing that. And then I always say, I always want to say to people, if you're really worried about someone making an accusation against you when you didn't do it, a good first step to avoid it, well, first of all, this is a, I like this, this kind of conversation. Instead of having all the conversations where we're teaching women how to avoid being raped, I would rather we spent a couple of thousand years having conversations with men about how to avoid being falsely accused of sexual harassment. And a good first step is don't be an asshole. <laughs> because who's gonna want to falsely accuse you if you're a nice person? If you're a really nice person, no one's gonna want to do that. There are some exceptions, like if you're really rich, like really rich and they want your money. But if you're really that rich, maybe you're an asshole already. <laughs> I mean really rich. Yeah. All right. Um, something you did not uh, cover in this book, but perhaps um, I would like to bring up. Um, it is similar in a way to this uh, way of thinking and fits in this diagram. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it's similar in my understanding of things to affirmative action, which mm -hmm. has a tremendous uh, track record of success in the US in particular. And here in New Zealand, we're doing a lot for our Maureen Pacifica students and raising achievement and all. So overall, this, is, this approach is working. Um, you mentioned something about women in STEM, and I'd like to focus it on women in mathematics more mm -hmm. specifically. Mm -hmm. It is a very male-dominated area, and um, there are a few studies have been done trying to understand what causes this phenomenon, and um, so far we don't have too many studies in terms of actually understanding it, but some of the factors contributing it well, the top one is uh, fierce competition. This is considered to be a really competitive field. In order to become an academic in mathematics, you have to go through layers of competition to get there. And the other factor was uh, what is called a death by thousand cuts. And uh, that is um, hard to... I mean, it's easy to explain, I guess, but that's what's happened on a daily routine if you're a female working in a male-dominated field. And um, can we use your approach to tackle this problem and come up with a, perhaps a clear solution how we can do that? It's very interesting you should say that because this is the topic of my next book. Oh! <laughs> and that was not a plant. We did not discuss that in advance. No, we and, did not. <laughs> but because I, because I am a woman in a male-dominated field, I get asked this often. And when I was younger, I didn't want to talk about it because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. I didn't want to draw attention to the fact that I was a woman in case it then had a negative result, a negative impact on the rest of my career. But then, first of all, I became more secure in my career. And then I realized that, that we need role models and that I should put myself out there to help other people in case it helps. Because I looked around me and I saw that the image of mathematicians in the public eye, the mathematicians who typically go in the public eye are older white men. Nothing against you older white men, I'm sure you're very nice. But they were all older white men. And particularly the image of mathematicians in Hollywood movies and things like that is a particular type of weird, unsociable, slightly unstable person who can't have a social life or make friends. And this is, 
There are people like that in mathematics, but it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you think that you have to be like that in order to be a mathematician, then only people who are like that will become mathematicians, and everyone else will go, oh, I have, I have too many friends to be a mathematician. <laughs> and actually, true story, there was one time I was entering, um, entering the US on a tourist on a tourist wa waiver thing. And they said to me, what do you, what, why are you coming to Chicago? And I said, I'm visiting friends. And they said, how do you know these friends? <laughs> and I said, well, I used to work here on a J-1 visa. And they said, what, what, what work did you do? And I said, I'm a math professor. And they said, you're a math professor. I said, yes. And they said, so you can't have any friends. <laughs> tricky when you're talking at immigration because you can't contradict them but also so that that's the kind of thing that sometimes happens so I decided that somehow when I was little I didn't need role models who look like me which is a good thing because there weren't any but my parents luckily brought me up and my education gave me the idea that I could do anything and and only later did I realize that many girls and people of color do not get that conviction that they can do anything. And they look around them and they don't see people who look like them doing it. And then they think, oh, well, I better go and do something else. And so I thought, well, see, I wish that nobody needed female role models because I wish that all girls could know that they can do anything that a man can do. But while we do need female role models, I thought I'd better put myself out there because I, I am one and because I really think you don't have to be friendless in order to be a mathematician. <laughs> and the, but one of the things I realized is that some, some things that make it difficult being a woman are really because of being a woman. They're things like these stupid comments that people make or when people won't take you seriously or when uh, it's harder to gain students' respect because, because they're some kind of arrogant boy and they will only listen to a man. Or in meetings when uh, people said to me that, I was coming across as just very emotional because I responded too quickly to everything and no one could imagine that I was actually thinking fast. <laughs> and and I, I refuse to pretend to be less intelligent than I am. And I know that some girls do this in order to get more dates because if you, you have to pretend you're less intelligent so that, well anyway, that's a whole different story. <laughs> My partner may be here somewhere. He may be asleep still. Um, but, there, um, but there are other things, there are other aspects of, of, of being a woman that may not be to do with specifically being a woman, but are just to do with general issues of character type instead. And so my next book is about separating out those issues so that when it's not specifically to do with gender, we can stop talking about gender and focus on character type. Because I've realized that that, like you say, it's a competitive world and that the, the maths, maths is competitive, academia is competitive, the world is competitive. And um, I think that New Zealand is a much more pleasant country than some other countries like America, which is exceedingly aggressively competitive. I agree. And, mm -hmm. and the thing is that that means that everyone thinks that they need to be as competitive and aggressive as possible. And we get told things like that you have to have self-confidence and, and you have to have high self-esteem and you have to take risks and you have to be resilient. And, and I personally didn't want to do any of those things and maybe there are other women who didn't. There are also other men who don't want to be like that as well. And in fact, the Prime Minister was just talking about how in politics you're expected to just say, yes, I'm definitely going to win even though you're polling right at the bottom. And, <laughs> and she said that it, was, it seems a bit silly that of course you, you think that you might not 
win if you're polling right at the bottom, but you're not supposed to say it. And this can affect people because if they feel like they're not doing well, then they'll decide to go and do something else. Whereas some people do, and it's often male students I've found, they do terribly in their exams, but they still think they're great. And so they still carry on. And I've seen people who will do things like get rejected from their first 50 graduate school applications, but still be convinced that they're destined to be the next greatest mathematician, so they'll keep going. Whereas if I hadn't got into my first collect choice place, I was ready to quit, because I thought if I didn't get into Cambridge, then it showed that I wasn't good enough to be a mathematician and I shouldn't carry on. And there are many female students I've seen like that who, at the slightest setback, they're so aware of, of how they're being judged, at the slightest setback, they'll go, oh, I should probably go and do something else. And that's where it's really important for senior people to step in and give them the encouragement and say, actually, you're really good, you're better. And I often say this to my students, and they come in not so much in art school now because I've, I've changed things how I teach, but in, when I used to teach math majors, the, there'd be girls who would come in at the first week crying and saying, I just don't think I'm good enough for this because there are these other students who are calling out answers all the time. And I say to them, you know, they're actually doing really badly in their homework. They're just loud. <laughs> and in the end, being loud doesn't help you be a mathematician. And actually, having self-doubt, I think, makes you, has the potential to make you a better person. Because first of all, you don't just say stuff without backing it up. You actually try and find evidence and you make sure your proofs are correct. You don't just sail through things and be convinced you're right without checking yourself. And you also, if you have self-doubt, then it, you can use it to improve yourself as a human. I have spent my whole life trying to improve myself as a human and trying to make, find ways that I can make a better contribution to the world. Rather than going through the world and going, I'm great, I'm great, I don't need to do anything. I, I, I take criticism very seriously and it's true that maybe I would have a less traumatic life if I just let criticism wash off me. But I don't, because I take it all seriously, and sometimes I go into a corner and I cry. And then, and then I try and decide whether it was worthwhile, whether it was criticism that had a point. So if it's something, if it's someone saying, well, you, you, and it's on page 50 in my book already, then I know I can put that aside. <laughs> But, but for, sometimes, sometimes the searching questions, for example, someone once said to me at the end of a talk, they said, have you thought about the fact that you're actually fulfilling stereotypes? Because you're an Asian woman and you're a mathematician and a musician, and that's what all Asians do. <laughs> and and it, yes, Actually, I have thought about it, because there are very few things that someone can ask me that I haven't already thought about, actually. <laughs> and, and also because I've spent my whole life with people saying to me, oh, of course you're good at maths and music, you're Asian. <laughs> so yes, I have thought about it. And what I thought is that while that is a stereotype, and while I acknowledge that thus I don't have to fight a stereotype threat, that some people have to, to other people of color who are not Asian, have to fight the, the stereotype threat that if there's an assumption that they will not be good at math, and even especially girls. Sometimes Latino girls in America tell me that their fathers tell them that they'll never be good at maths because they're girls. And I don't have to fight that, but there's still an, an assumption that Asian women will be quiet and demure and that they won't put themselves forward or have opinions or contradict people. So, um, Far be it from me to say whether I have opinions or ever contradict them. <laughs> yes, thank you. It's, it's a tricky question to, um, to solve. Um, my research area is now in mathematics education, and I was looking at the evidence, 
And there is a thing that's called self-efficacy, and it is affecting gender tremendously in terms of, it's, it's a predictor of not just academic achievement, but at the young ages, it's a predictor of career choices. Mm -hmm. And so how did you choose to become a mathematician? I mean, you mentioned your supportive parents. Mm -hmm who instilled in you this, um, this uh, thought that you can do anything, okay. but then how did you make that choice to actually go and pursue your mathematical... It really job? wasn't that much of a choice. It was pretty obvious to me. And it was always to do with both wanting to, loving mathematics and wanting to do research in it, but also wanting to go into education. I was never one of those people who just wanted to do research and that I'll put up with teaching students because that's the only way you can get a job. I really cared about education for my whole life, and I wanted to go into that to do both of those things. And my mother is mathematical, and my father is a child psychiatrist, and so he's a very intuitive person. And so actually I've got somewhat gender-reversed situations because there's a stereotype that men are terribly rational and that women are really empathetic. And I think that having it the other way around in my family really helped. And that's why I thank my parents for teaching me both logic and intuition, and for teaching me how to see both of them as, as valid and valuable because my father uses what we call different logic and um, my mother uses normal logic. Anyway. <laughs> so I, they instilled in me a belief and it wasn't even a belief that I could do anything. It was just a kind of general assumption that we can all do maths, can't we? And, and sometimes, sometimes parents come up to me, especially mothers, and they say to me, I'm really bad at maths and I don't want to pass it on to my children. And I always want to say, well, the first thing is to please stop thinking of yourself as bad at maths because you probably will pass it on to your children at that point. And there was an amazing study they did where they showed that they looked at how much parents helped their children with their maths homework. And if their parents had maths phobia themselves, then the more they helped them with the children with their homework, the worse their children got <laughs> at maths. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons I, I want to help everyone uh, overcome maths phobia or maths trauma is because it's a vicious circle and it gets perpetuated across generations. And I understand this via an abstract analogy because my mother's afraid of dogs and she passed that on to me. And so I know that fear can be passed on. And of course, children learn fear from their parents for really sensible reason where your parents have to teach you about the dangers of the world. And so if, if your parents feel something as a danger, then it's kind of sensible for children to pick that up. But we need to, I hope we can break it at some point, because if we get another generation afraid of mathematics and afraid of logical thinking, then we get a public who can be manipulated by politicians, by unscrupulous politicians and unscrupulous media and by, by misrepresenting rep data and statistics. And we, I hope, all agree that we don't want that. Mm -hmm. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.